Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night. Boy, do you look good. Thanks, Stu. An old broad like me needs to hear that once in a while. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a nice black outfit you have on there. What's, what's the occasion? You and the <laughs> podcast. Wow. <laughs> I love your shirt, Home Birth Hatched. What Home Birth Hatched. Yeah. It's given to me by, by midwives. I don't want to get it wrong, but I think it was in Fort Collins, Colorado, is my is my uh, guess when I spoke there last year. Forgive love me. It. Forgive me if I got the wrong people, but. <laughs> you should see my closet. I have lots of lots of uh, t-shirts. So I know I love it. So I alluded to this a couple podcasts ago, but we are getting ready. I think it'll probably be in the fall to launch our Patreon community here with you guys. And so if you hear us talking about things and you think, gosh, I'd really like to see what they look like today, that would be fun. You're going to be able to watch the videos without commercials and other amazing stuff in our Patreon. So um, I always have a cup of coffee and Stu pretty much always has a t-shirt on. So I've never recorded a podcast without a shirt on. So I don't, I don't think we'll be doing that, but you I know what? Me neither. <laughs> yeah. People, I bet people would pay for that. We'll see. Maybe that'll be. <laughs> Maybe for you, not necessarily for me. I got a, I got a bit of a, ha- a hairy chest. So that's just the way anyway. it goes. Never, wa- so, never waxed my chest. Never, never, never went with the Brad Pitt look. Sorry. <laughs> so tell me about your week. How, how have things been? What's new? Well, I can't remember the last time we spoke, uh, but I think since the last time we spoke, I became a grandpa. That's true. Congratulations. Yeah. Mila Marie. Mila. I thought so. Yeah. Mila. And. I'm going to see her. Obviously, by the time this podcast comes out, I'll have been to New Orleans and back. But my uh, stepson, Alex's girlfriend, Haley, had a birth in the hospital. I was biting my lip the entire time because I was getting updates from my son. And, you know, my family respects me a lot. But they, but when it comes to birth, they don't really listen to me that much, which may surprise some of our travelers. But when I was getting texts from Alex saying things like, she's two centimeters, she's three centimeters, she's five (laughs) centimeters, she's getting her epidural, she's seven centimeters, she's almost complete, she's got to push, but they're telling her she has to wait because the doctor's not there yet. (laughs) You know, these sorts of things. So my multiparous, I can't really call her, she's not my daughter-in-law yet or anything like that. I'm hoping that that will happen at some day, but I don't know. I don't like the term baby mama either. So the mother of my granddaughter had seven vaginal exams as a multip. Wow. In labor. Wow. And she's GBS positive and declined antibiotics, I think, which was good. Then they sent me a picture of, uh, of Mila wrapped up like a burrito with glistening eyes. So you know what that means, right? Erythromycin. Yep, mm-hmm. they gave her erythromycin, but I believe they held off on any injections. Uh, they okay. they texted me about hepatitis. What do you think about hepatitis B? And I'm like, uh, yeah, like two words, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Don't start it. 
<laughs> yeah. And then just, and then they had a, they, they wanted to keep the baby for 48 hours because of her group B strep status. And I said, no, there's no way. I said, and the next morning was Saturday. I said, you tell them you're leaving. You tell them you're quite capable of watching your baby. You're quite capable. You have medical personnel in your family. You'll be fine. But it wasn't the very, you know, they were encouraging the 48 hours, which we've talked about before is 48 hours is meaningless. 48 hours is as long as they can charge for, but late onset group huh? B strep can be the day three, day four, day five, day six. So the 48 hours is just to maximize the coding, I think. Yeah. You know what I was thinking? Mila Marie is M&M. Well, you know what her last name is? Makai. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so she's 3M, which is where I came from. 3M is Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. So my nickname for her is going to be 3M, I think. <laughs> but I haven't decided yet what they're going to call me. Huh. Not grandpa? No, I think we, you often use terms of endearment, like, you know, Mimi or Babu or Nana. But those things come up naturally over time. Yeah. So I'm assuming that it'll just be Grandpa Stewie until, <laughs> until, until she speaks her first words and whatever comes out will then be my name. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. All of that makes me just giddy thinking about it. You're going to have so much fun. Well, congratulations to everybody. That is amazing. And you know what's interesting? I'm here in Sacramento with my boys. My youngest just turned 20 and my oldest is 31. And as you guys know, <laughs> well, maybe you don't know, but I cannot wait to be a grandma. I mean, everything. I try not to bug them because neither one of them is dating yet. So it's going to be kind of hard to be a grandma until then. But they're starting to talk about it. My older son said, well, if I don't actually end up meeting the girl, I'm going to adopt. And I was like, great. I don't care. I'm just happy. And then my youngest son was watching some kids cross the street or something. And he goes, someday. And I was like, I love hearing that. I cannot wait. So I am just living vicariously through your joy. And again, yeah. if, if our, our podcasts were watching, they could see you beaming right now, which is just adorable. So congratulations. Yeah, I, I, again, congratulations to Haley, who did amazing, and Alex, who was an amazing support person for her. And I'll see you in a few days. Okay. Yay. So that's that's it for me. Otherwise, I've been at the homestead. I'm, I'm planting shrubbery. And uh, I went to St. George's. I bought a new computer uh, because <laughs> this little old baby has just about had it. She glitches all the time now, and I can't have glitching. So bought a new computer. And I bought a electric lawnmower uh, for the nooks and crannies where the riding mower won't go. So that's that was my day yesterday. Uh, it's funny, I, my car looked like the truck in Beverly Hillbillies as I was coming back <laughs> from uh, St. George. <laughs> I had things sticking out the window and plants in the back. And uh, it. all I needed was granny sitting on top, but didn't have granny sitting on top. Well, I've been in my little cute little apartment that I had in Santa Bar in um sorry in Sacramento where I would visit my boys but I've made the decision to really put down some roots in Santa Barbara. So I've come up here to get all of my stuff and I climbed into my own bed because I've been subleasing so I've been sleeping in somebody else's bed or on hope or in a hotel or you know whatever and I climbed into my own bed when I got here and I was like, "Oh my god, I love my bed." And you forget how having your little details, like your photographs and your little things that you've, you know, collected over time, how it really just like, even in this tiny little space, it, it creates home. So I'm excited to do that. And you will be happy to know that I just reached out to the place that I 
have a little office in Santa Barbara to see if I can get it consistently every Wednesday, Wednesday, so that I have a place where I can set up to have an office for a, a podcast for recording. recording um, so that we can be consistent, have good Wi-Fi, good, good equipment and all of that. So I'm always thinking about you guys and making this a better experience. What's our topic today? What's our topic today? You know, what we're going to talk about today is induction. And we did talk about that a while back. What was the number, Stu? Podcast 252, we talked about natural induction, right? Yeah, and we, we did a good job of talking about a lot of different things. But, you know, for the people that are not in the midwifery model, in the community-based model, this is a massive topic. And so I really thought that we could revisit it and go a little bit deeper talking about the ARRIVE trial and some of that stuff too. And you wanted to talk about some of the downsides of getting an induction. So I think that, that this is going to be a really great topic. Yeah, I did a, I did a lot of deep diving for, yeah. for myself, but also obviously for our fellow travelers, because this is a topic that, you know, pretty much every pregnant woman who's in the hospital or medical model setting is going to have to deal with the question of, or the recommendation of, of an in, about induction. So we're going to take a deep dive into that. Before we do that, I've got want, a couple things too. Yeah, I want you to pause for a minute and let that sink in. That pretty much every woman who is in the traditional obstetrical medical industrial complex is going to have to deal with the question of induction. Just that is wild. And I really do believe that that's true. Probably probably very high statistic in the in the high 90s percentage wise of people that have to think consider battle agree to whatever so yeah thanks for doing that deep dive okay what else yeah, do you yeah, have that, i'm glad you emphasized that sometimes i say stuff and i'm rolling on to the next topic and you're right it's a very upsetting <laughs> it's very upsetting it is for from our perspective it is all right so I just want to, I just have some stuff to kept, catch up on from previous podcasts before we uh, get into that, if you have a moment. Uh, so the first one is uh, uh, we talked a little bit about on our ultrasound podcast. We talked about, you know, color Doppler and some of the times finding things that are not really necessary and the higher intensity of color Doppler and 3D ultrasound. So Amanda from Instagram Writes, writes what I, and I wrote down, this is a good question, is to know or not to know, is, is it important? Hi, Dr. Stu, I was listening to episode 313 and was struck by what you mentioned about color Doppler being used on ultrasounds. Last week, I had my 20-week anatomy scan and it all looked perfect until they turned on the color Doppler. When they evaluated the heart, we were told by the tech that there was a small, quote, bleed over, quote, in the bottom chambers of the heart. The tech wasn't able to confirm if this was a true bleed or just an artifact of the ultrasound machine as nothing abnormal was seen without the color Doppler turned on. The tech immediately started throwing around terms like trisomy 21 and Down syndrome, which I guess are the same thing. So, <laughs> But maybe the tech didn't know that. And strongly suggested we pursue genetic testing. We met with the MFM following the scan who assured us the likelihood of, a, of the VSD so what she was talking about was a ventricular septal defect. Closing prior to birth is near 80%. It would not impact my ability to deliver naturally at a birth center with our midwife, but we will need to return for a repeat anatomy scan in four weeks. And if that still shows some bleed over, then we would need to pursue an echocardiograph. 
Internally, I wondered why the need for all of this extra scanning if it was not going to impact my pregnancy or delivery. I didn't Good question. I didn't question it. But after listening to the episode, so here we go again. You and I are causing trouble. I'm not, <laughs> going, I'm not going to pursue any additional ultrasounds. It is clear that they are trying to upsell me on not just one, but two more ultrasounds and genetic testing for a, quote, problem, unquote, that might not even exist. And worst case scenario will close up on its own before or shortly after birth. Thanks for all of you and Midwife List do to spread the no BS information to empower women during their pregnancies and birth. That's Amanda on Instagram. So the question is, is it important to know that or not know that? Because it's not going to change anything that happens during the pregnancy or the labor. Right. It's not a cardiac defect that will require immediate open heart cardiac surgery on a newborn baby rushed from the delivery room to the operating room, that sort of thing. So, right. Right. So the, so the color Doppler great. found something that now is planted seeds of concern that will go through her. Now she's been able to sort of compartmentalize it. And I think looks like she's on the road to good health and mental health, but still, okay. this is just something a lot of these stories we put out, are simply, and I'm sure they're going to ring a bell with many of our fellow travelers because they've been through this whole sort of thing. But I want I want people to be aware that these things happen all the time. Right. And you know what? That um, It's a totally different topic. However, it sparked something in my brain that I thought I would like to just share and then hear how you would counsel somebody. So I'm um, so, what was that? What was that listener's name that just wrote that? Amanda, Amanda. So Amanda, great job in discerning the information for yourself. And I think that that's critically thinking. That's just what we have to do and commonsensical. So we're so proud of you. So a client of mine reached out to me the other day. She was chasing after her toddler or a dog or something. And she hit the corner. <laughs> What's of, the difference? <laughs> <laughs> she hit the corner of her counter really, really hard, full speed on her pregnant belly. Mm -hmm. And. So she reached out to me and she said, you know, it's tender to the touch. You know, I like actually like fell to the floor. I was in so much pain. I was like, you know, it was really, really painful. And what I told her was uh, that, you know, she could go in and be evaluated if she felt that that was important. However, that babies are very well protected inside of the uterus from the uterine muscle and then also the amniotic fluid. So, you know, if someone had a severe accident, like in a car accident or something like that, it, it could compromise the pregnancy in some way. And, you know, it's the thing that we have to do, which don't love, but I'll, you know, you have to make sure that you say things to them so that if they're asking you questions about, is there anything I should be looking for? You're like, okay, well, I guess it's possible you could have some internal bleeding. So if it gets worse, not better, if you see bleeding, if you have decreased movement or anything like that, you might want to call me back. But again, so, so, so unlikely that, you know, a fall on your belly or bumping into something really hard like that would cause any issue in your pregnancy or with the baby. So I just wondered if you would have said something a little bit different in regards to that. Well, the, the standard recommendation when a woman suffers a significant blow to her belly, whether it's from a seatbelt or a shopping cart or falling down is the risk of the potential for placental abruption, right. uh, a sudden deceleration, you're moving fast and you hit a brick wall. Okay. So the, the potential shearing force that that can have. And the standard recommendation is to go in and be monitored for 12 hours or, or whatever, just on a NST machine 
to watch for a pattern of uterine irritability that would imply possibly tachycystole and, and an abruption of the placenta. Those things rarely happen without symptoms. Right. So again, most medical guidelines overcall things to the point where, you know, somebody is benefiting, medical models benefiting by having you come in and do that. So, so there is some wisdom there, but there's also innate wisdom in ourselves that says that, yes, I'm really sore, but baby's moving. I'm not, I'm not seeing any vaginal change in discharge or blood. My uterus is soft everywhere else. Now, if my uterus is rock hard, if the baby's pattern of movement changes, then it's absolutely necessary. And it's very rare for me to say this, but to go in and hospital and be monitored for a period of time just to be sure that nothing happened. But the bruise and the soreness is typical. I mean, if you or I rammed into the corner of a desk or something, it would hurt us. We're not pregnant, but it would hurt. So it's not just the pain, but it's the it, it's the idea that and the farther along you are in pregnancy, the more likely it is to cause a problem. So if you're, you know, 37, 38 weeks and you ram into a desk, it's different than if you're 22 weeks. Uh, so, yes, I, I would I probably not told her to go to the hospital, but I would have told her to be vigilant and maybe to check. I would have checked in with her an hour or two and see what's happening to make that decision. Because only because I have such an aversion of telling people to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, agree. I had another mom about six months ago who actually fell down on her belly and hurt herself enough to have to get stitches on her arm. So she did end up going to the hospital to get checked out and to get stitches. But I think leaving it up to the, to the mom to be able to make a good decision for herself, especially somebody who's very aware and conscientious about, you know, things. So great. Anyways, yeah. that would be interesting for some people. Um, I love when, when something stimulates your mind and you go off on a tangent like that, because this is, these are the kind of things that, that our clients are thinking about too. So great. I mean, our fellow travelers, I don't have clients anymore, but or currently anyway. I have one correction. This is from Christy, and I really appreciate her sending this because we like to be accurate on the show. And she says, hi, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. My name's Christy. I'm a doula, CLC, and matrescence coach in Metro Detroit. I'm a few episodes behind on your podcast, so forgive me if this is old news. Today, I was catching up with episode 311 and 312. And I heard you mention that breastfeeding rates in the U.S. are now close to 80%. Remember when we said that? No. <laughs> okay. Well, we did. And she okay. said, sadly, that number is not entirely accurate. That figure comes from the CDC, which states that in 2019, 83.2% of infants started out receiving some breast milk. And 78.6% were still receiving breast, any breast milk at one month. By six months, the numbers dropped significantly, where only 55.8% of infants received any breast milk, and only 249 received breast milk exclusively. So at six months, only 25% of babies are still only getting breast milk. And even at early on, breastfeeding exclusively is not anywhere near 80%. So it's the initiation of breastfeeding is 83%, but it declines. Yeah, well, the Clients or, or, or they start supplementing with formula. So they breastfeed sometimes, give formula sometimes, that sort of thing. Our modern society sets parents up for failure rather than success to reach their breastfeeding goals. Creating and raising children should be the most sacred and highly honored job of all. It is actually valued the least and families suffer for it. It is my deepest and most sincere belief that we can change 
the world simply by changing the way we treat people during birth and motherhood. The best way to make a lasting impact for generations to come is to start valuing parenting. Thank you for all you do. Hopefully the work we are doing today will create lasting ripples into the future. And maybe someday we really will, we will really reach 80%. Yes. Well, I'd like to say this is another plug for the midwifery model, because I think you could talk to any midwife and you would find out that our statistics are even much higher than 80%. I would say my statistic personally is probably 100% initiation. And I can only think of two moms that I wasn't able to help exclusively breastfeed for the first six months. And they had an anatomical um, reason. And one of them stopped breastfeeding and started supplementing because it was just too hard for her with toddler. And the other one was able to continually pump and give, I think it was like, she was getting uh, milk from donors for months and months and months. So she was still exclusively breastfeeding, but not from her breast and not her own milk. So, and I, and I bet that if we pulled midwives, we would find that it is a much, much higher statistic. And that is mainly because we're attentive and we're supportive and we have resources and, you know, you can be there to help give information and that can make the world of difference for someone who might be struggling during that time. And don't you wonder how the CDC actually gets these numbers? It's a very good question. I hadn't wondered that, but. <laughs> well, I mean, since since the CDC is such a trusted organization in, mm-hmm. the, in America in 2023, we have to assume that they're, they're doing due diligence to get these numbers. I have no idea. Do they send out surveys? Are they asking? Who are they asking? Does anyone listening ever, ever gotten a survey from the CDC asking them that they're still breastfeeding at six months? I, right. I personally think they, they pull these things out of their ass. Because I don't, I don't know. They, I mean, has any midwife ever been contacted by the CDC to find out? No, no. So how how are they? Are they getting it from pediatricians' offices? Maybe that's what I Mm think. Right, but a lot of people don't go to pediatricians. You're already you're already self selecting a population that's less likely to breastfeed. That's true. I don't know. I just again just emphasizes my thing about statistics and data being almost impossible to interpret. So trust your instincts, trust your common sense. Okay. Um, one last thing I just want to talk about was uh, recently uh, somebody asked me to call in a prescription to a pharmacy in California. So I called it in, I left a voicemail and I got a call back from the pharmacy, from the pharmacy tech, which it went to my voicemail. So then I had to call back, got their voicemail and played phone tag for a while. Turns out that they couldn't fill the prescription for the woman because I didn't leave my office address. Mm-hmm. So I told the pharmacist, I don't have an office address. What? You can't fill a prescription if you don't have an office address. It's like, so in other words, the electronic prescription system can't contemplate that some doctors retired but still licensed or tell them, tell them, what do you call it? Uh, tell them at a telehealth. telehealth. Yeah. Telehealth doctors. Who work out of their basement, like me. Um, so that whoever designed the system didn't design it so that they were thinking just live, they're living in their little administrative box. Oh, every doctor has an office. Oh, yeah. No, they don't. No, they don't. Yeah. So you know, I gave them my home address, and that they filled in the box, and then they filled the prescription. 
But right. because my old phone number is disconnected, so now I give them my cell phone number, and that's not in their computer. So things don't match up. But they don't, it's again, it's like the ants stuck behind the falling leaf. They don't know what to do. They right. can't figure out how to go around the leaf. And, and yeah, so, okay. But it's just a, one of those funny things where, why do I have to have an office to call on a prescription? Oh, I've definitely been dealing with this being on the road. It's, you know, it's been very interesting trying to figure out how to, you know, figure it out. But you do have to have an address. Otherwise, people are like, you don't really exist. <laughs> right, right. You can't do something out of their box. Anyway, people are listening know what I'm talking about. Okay, so let's take a quick break. And then I have a letter that's going to lead us into our discussion today about labor induction. Okay? Okay, right back. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. I love our sponsors. I hope the people support them. Me too. I use all those. Pro I actually use all the products that we recommend. So uh, definitely check them out because we really believe in the people that we unite with. Okay. So back to interesting stuff, more interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Lauren. And I, my little caption on it is it's fear-directed care leading to a cascade of interventions. So surprise. Was, what's that? Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, yeah, you and I get, we get these, sometimes we share them and we back and forth and we just roll our eyes, but I am an LDRPRN. So that's labor delivery, recovery, postpartum, I think, RN, who is a big fan of your podcast. Thank you. The longer I've worked in labor and delivery, the more troubled I have become in regards to common practices in the hospital. I have become more and more aware of the pervasiveness of uninformed consent, obstetrical violence, and practices that are not supported by evidence. Common occurrences include physicians releasing a woman's waters without asking, performing cervical checks unnecessarily, Haley, <laughs> my, my granddaughter's mama, and often without asking, giving medications like Pitocin without true informed consent, and often without discussing with the woman, and even giving episiotomies that seemed unnecessary and without consent. For my patients, I do as much as I can to give them the best experience possible and prevent these issues, but it still happens on the unit. 
I was lucky to find this podcast to validate what I was feeling, that so much goes on in the hospital seems so wrong and counterintuitive. Anyway, I'm actually four months postpartum with my first baby. And going into pregnancy, I knew I would have to fight to avoid a lot of these issues. Even with all my knowledge of the industry, I still feel some things were done I was not okay with. In my first OB appointment at eight weeks, they were doing a speculum exam to get swabs, which I was okay with. In the midwifery model, you guys taught me, just send them into the bathroom with the swabs and let them do the swabs themselves. But, but speculum was the way I was taught to do it because that's how it's done in the medical model. And I told the OB I wanted to be talked through every single thing that, he, that they might do in the exam. Even with that speech beforehand, the OB still went on to perform a bimanual exam and a pap smear without asking. Luckily, Jesus I was paying attention. What? I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Luckily, I was paying attention and stopped him right before he stuck his hand into my body. I cried uncontrollably after that. I felt so violated. There were no options for midwives in my area. The closest was two hours away. This was the only OBGYN group, and it was one of my only options in the area. I was so anxious going into the birth because I was afraid of what might be done to me without consent or good reason. And I was afraid I would not be able to advocate for myself as I normally would because I would be in labor. So, so much is what she said in those two sentences. This is an educated nurse who is afraid that she won't be, advocate, be able to advocate in labor, which brings up Kimberly Ann Johnson's thing about fawning and, and, and you know, feeling like intimidated in that, in that whole setting. But also every other word out of her in every sentence is, I was afraid, I was afraid, I was afraid. This is not how pregnant women should have to be. It's not how anybody should have to be, but especially a pregnant woman and in a really vulnerable state, 100%. So I discussed it with every OB at almost every appointment. Again, she's seeing different OBs at every appointment too. Another thing about the system. The OB required an extra ultrasound at 32 weeks because I have Hashimoto's and quote, there was a risk of IUGR, unquote. Is this necessary if I was measuring normal? Liz, what's the answer? No. No, <laughs> no, no, necessary. No, it's a sentence. Well, also Hashimoto's controlled with thyroid medication is not a reason to do a 32 week ultrasound. If they're, you know, unless you have clinical suspicion otherwise, right. but her fundal height and everything was growing fine anyway. Right. So guess what happened? Of course they found something wrong. Yes. The baby, the baby's weight was estimated in the 15th percentile. Still normal. Yeah, that means 14% of people had babies smaller than her. Okay. But the abdominal circumference was only the seventh percentile. Yeah. Still normal. And they diagnosed me with fetal growth restriction slash IUGR and said I had to get scans one to two times a week the rest of the pregnancy. This was at 32 weeks. Okay. And should be induced at 38 weeks. It seemed so excessive. And even with all my knowledge and research, found myself agreeing to all these scans. My gut instinct was that nothing was wrong. Trust your gut. Just like your woman who bumped into the counter. Trust your gut. He was just a small baby to fit my petite body. Yes. Every NST, biophysical profile, and Doppler study came back normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how many extras, ultrasounds, and Doppler studies was this baby exposed to? And cynically, how much money did this MFM make? And how much money did this insurance company pay that was unnecessary? Um, they all came back normal, and I pushed not to have to not have an induction unless the test indicated it was necessary. Okay, good. At 39 weeks and one day, I had an appointment where a biophysical profile where fetal breathing was not found, and I got a score of six out of eight. 
Now let's talk about fetal breathing for a second. First of all, in order to determine fetal breathing, you're supposed to watch the baby for at least 30 minutes. I know for a fact, not necessarily in this case, but in every case that I've ever seen, is that they don't see, no one's going to sit there and watch for 30 minutes. The tech isn't right. going to do it. They don't right. see fetal breathing in five minutes. They're just going to say zero on fetal breathing. And fetal breathing is an intermittent thing. It doesn't happen all the time. So this is a false flag. All right. Can so you, she, could, could you, I know you're reading the story and I'd love for you to get back to it, but just as a pause, yeah. can you explain why fetal breathing is part of the assessment for that? Like, what it, is that? It, I think the implication is that it implies that the baby's uh, is well oxygenated. That's what it implies. It's a normal, healthy thing that babies do when they're well oxygenated. Babies that are asphyxiated will not do that. They'll not have those breathing motions in utero. I actually don't understand the minute physiology behind the whole thing and how it, how it works. But it, you know, generally we just say, "Oh, there's the baby practicing. It's practicing. It's right. breathing inside." And somebody, parent, will go, "Well, why doesn't it? You know." It's not, it's not choking. How come it's not choking? If you were underwater and you were breathing, you'd be choking. But that's because it's not using its lungs to breathe. It's practicing. It's, maybe it's just exercising its diaphragm uh, to get ready mm -hmm. for outside of intrauterine life. I don't know. But it's something that a well-oxygenated fetus will do. But it only does it periodically. It's not like you or right. an eye, which takes a, you know, a breath 12 to 16, 30 times a minute. It's, right. you know, you'll see, and then you might not see anything for you know, a few minutes. But that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's it's just a normal reassuring thing. The fact that it's not there is the least of all the parameters in the biophysical profile of significance. All right. Right. At that point, they urged me to go directly to labor and delivery that day for induction. I did not feel it was necessary, but I could not find any evidence or studies to help me decide not to follow their advice. I could not find evidence either way on why fetal breathing on a biophysical profile is important. So we just talked a little bit about that. Um, again, it's the one that's the least, the most common to not be seen. The other ones are tone, movement, and amniotic fluid volume. And those, you know, babies are constantly moving. And if they're asleep, you can actually stimulate them and wake them up. But fetal breathing is not something that can necessarily trigger. So I went for the induction. Here we go. And what I knew would be a cascade of interventions. I got Cytotec Vaginally, four doses. They said I was to be NPO which means nothing to eat, which is crazy. So I just had my husband go down to the cafeteria and bring me food for each meal despite the NPO rule. That's a, that's a well-informed medical personnel nurse knowing that the NPO rule is not only stupid, but mean. After NPO, while you're laying there with Cytotec in your, in your you know, why? Yeah. What possible explanation could they give you that could possibly make any sense? And I don't want to hear about a woman who's laying in bed who might aspirate and need emergency surgery, all right, while she's having her cervix ripened. Ugh. After six hours after my fourth dose of Cytotec, my water started leaking and my body went into labor without further medication. So she didn't require any other augmentation at that point. That's good. I, I walked, did lunges, lots of spinning babies positions. And within an hour of contractions, I start starting, I went into transition-like contractions, extreme pain with no break at all between contractions something we call tachycystole, which is where you're having contraction on top of contraction on top of contraction, which can happen uh, spontaneously, but it can happen after prostaglandin, and it can happen on Pitocin too. I could not talk or mo only moan loudly. They were so powerful, even between peaks. I suspected I was in tachycystole. Oh, she says that. From the Cytotec. Tachycystole means, again, contractions more than five in 10 minutes over a 30-minute period of time. I got an epidural, which I was not opposed to. 
The staff realized I was in tachycystole after the epidural, after they put me back on the monitor, and I realized I was, I was contracting every 1.5 to 2 minutes, and my uterus was not fully relaxing in between. This, in combination with my blood pressure dropping from the epidural, right? We've mm -hmm. seen that. Anesthesiologists deny it, but it happens all the time. Made my baby's <laughs> heart rate have D cells into the 70s mm -hmm. after each contraction, but had great moderate variability throughout. So you know, these were variable D, cell, D cells. I was progressing so fast, they were, trying to, they were open to trying other interventions before considering a cesarean section. I was given tributylene. Think about all the things that are happening. Yeah. Because she didn't have fetal breathing on a yeah. profile. That was, not, that was being done for unnecessary reasons. Right. And tributylene, for those that don't know, is a medication that will help relax the uterus so that it's not contracting. Yeah, it's a tocolytic. It basically, it's... And by the way, it's off-label use, all right? Just, he did a whole podcast on off-label meds. So it's not indicated for this use, which slowed my contractions to every four minutes. And ephedrine, to raise my blood pressure, it was 80 over 40. So, so far, because they were doing unnecessary antenatal testing, she got side attack and ephedrine and terbutaline and an epidural. I don't know. I think I'm missing one, but whatever. Okay. I was in hands and knees, which also helped. After that, baby stabilized, and I was left to progress to labor down, which, by the way, is amazing that she wasn't taken for a crash C-section through all this stuff. So some kind of... Say it again. She was progressing so quickly, they said. That's why. Yeah. Still, in most hospital settings, with D-cells down to 70 and being unstable, they, they would have just taken the path of least resistance to the operating room. Yeah. Okay. I progressed from two to 10 centimeters in about three hours. The remaining four hours of just relaxing and laboring down slowly were thankfully peaceful, as was pushing, where I pushed on hands and knees and on both sides intuitively slowly for about 45 minutes until my sweet boy was born. Vaginal delivery. Skin to skin for over an hour and delayed cord clamping were great. The nurse kept messing with my IV for the Pitocin to flow good, so she gave them postpartum Pitocin and said she would have to place another IV. I declined because my EBL was 100 cc's, and I thought it was <laughs> ridiculous. Yep. Okay. He was SGA at small for gestational age at seventh percentile at birth, but he was perfectly healthy, and I believe the perfect size for me to birth him. Now at almost four months, he's the 20th percentile. Overall, I'm at peace with my birth, but if I were to do it again, would probably not agree to an induction, I also believe if I did not have the knowledge I do, I would have had a cesarean section. And I would just like to add that some babies, just by pure definition, need to be born at the seventh percentile. It's not pathology that all babies are at the seventh percentile. It's, a, it's normal. Um, that's how bell-shaped curves work. That's right. And do you remember what week she was when they did the induction? Well, I think she was 38th to 39th week, which was when she went in, I think, at the beginning. Okay. And then baby was... Seven pounds even? They didn't say the weight. Oh, okay. It doesn't say the weight. She's the seventh percentile, which I, you know, we'd ha have to look at a graph to figure that out. Okay. But, you okay. know, it's probably six and a half pounds. I suspect it was a six to seven pound baby, right? I was wondering your guys' thoughts on getting a scan at 32 weeks for Hashimoto's. We've already discussed that. Oh, yeah. Say it again, Bliss. You answered that. I know. What did I say? No. Right. <laughs> IUGR being a cause for induction, if not too severe, and how important fetal breathing is on a biophysical probe. We talked about that. 
I tried to research it, but there does not seem to be a ton of research of good studies. In general, if you have a biophysical profile that's six out of eight, with the only one missing is fetal breathing, then what normally would be done is we would do an NST. And if the NST is beautifully reactive, then the bio, then the then eight out of 10 score is perfectly fine. Worst case scenario is you bring the lady back tomorrow and you repeat the testing. Yeah. Doing, getting a biophysical profile of six out of eight without even doing an NST is not a reason to send someone for immediate induction ever, ever. Right. It's a reason to maybe find, do a little bit more diagnostic evaluation. Like, okay, you don't have an NST machine in your office, send her to labor and delivery, run an NST. If the NST is perfect, then send her home. So NST is a non-stress test, which is when the, the mom is placed on a monitor measures the baby's heart rate and contractions. So it's similar to what they are, the same thing that they do in the hospital when you're laboring. And there are certain parameters that they look for, decelerations, variability, those kinds of things. And you're on for about 20 minutes or so to see how, so that's what he's talking. That's what Dr. Stu's talking about. So SGA versus IUGR. So again, when we start to get into the, the technology, all of this techie stuff that's looking at very specific things, sometimes that's a godsend, definitely. Sometimes it saves lives. Sometimes we are able to go in a direction that is much better, a different plan that's much better. However, the amount of things that are similar to what we just heard is, is more likely than, than the previous. So if you're measuring normally, so let's say you're in a, in a midwife's care and you're measuring normally, then there wouldn't be a reason to do those additional tests. And I can't tell you how many times as a doula, um, I had a client who went in for an ultrasound similar to this and had that discrepancy between the abdomen and the head or the chest. And that discrepancy alone was enough for them to, to say that additional testing and induction and all of those things needed to happen. So, so often it is inaccurate. So just have to keep that in mind. And if you could stay with the less techie ways of evaluating a baby's growth, which is someone who's very skilled using their hands to be able to know that the baby is growing and measuring properly and assessing whether or not, like she said, she's a small woman. So small for gestational age is a normal thing. It just means that you are building a baby who's on the smaller scale. If we look at human beings, there's people that are really super tiny and there's people who are really big. And that is normal. We are not robots. We're not going to all be the same. So that's just common sense. That's a common sense thing to remember is that if you're small, if your husband is small, the likelihood is that you're probably going to build a small baby. IUGR is different. IUGR means that the baby is not getting what it needs and it is would be better served being on the outside than the inside. And what we would see as a midwife is that the baby starts to plateau and sometimes even get smaller. And, and so that is something that, you know, you can absolutely tell when you're a skilled midwife um, using our hands and knowing our clients the way that we do if a baby is not thriving. So I get really frustrated because I feel like so often, you know, you take a baby that could be like she could have been pregnant for another month. And that baby that came out small 
if it had been left alone, would have been absolutely perfect. If we had just let it fatten up and stay in and do, you know, do what it needed to do naturally. So anyways, I know that that was a little bit of a rant, but I definitely get well, there, there's, no, there's no deviation from, uh, there's no independent thought in this model. Everything that happened to her was sort of algorithmic thing. No, she has a score of six out of eight. That means we have to send to the hospital. It's like, there's no thought process that maybe we'll just recheck it. First of all, testing of the biophysical profile in NST is, is not absolute. There's lots of, it's often unreliable. So to make affirmative or definitive decisions based on one test when it's always been normal is it's not good medicine. I, I wanted to say them like insanity or, or stupidity or obtuseness, but it's just not good medicine. It's just not, it's not good medicine. And this is the kind of medicine that's practiced everywhere. This woman was put through the ringer, mm -hmm. all the things that happened to her, no mention of the fact that this baby came out early I don't, you know, she did have, she fought for probably skin to skin and had those sorts of things. But in a normal setting, if she didn't know the things that she knew, that baby probably would have been taken to the nursery. There's mm -hmm. all kinds of things. All the drugs that she was given, what do they do? What do they do to her system? What do they do to the baby system? They cross the placenta. What do they do? You know, I mean, we can look back and say, yes, we're sitting Monday morning quarterbacking or hindsight is twenty twenty, and say how stupid this was. And a broken clock is right twice a day. And sometimes the medical model will be right. But it's, it's so obvious here that this was overkill. And then one cascade of intervention at the top of the other. The only thing that didn't happen to her is she didn't end up with a C-section. Right. Because she was. probably is a tribute to, her, to Lauren. So thanks, Lauren, yeah. for your story. Okay. Um, the other thing, which is interesting, Stu, is, you know, what you mentioned about fetal breathing. You can't really assess it unless you've been watching for 30 minutes. So it's another way, just similar to what you were saying when we were talking about ultrasounds, that you can request for them to do a shorter amount of time, maybe not put on the color flow. There's some modifications that you can advocate for. And so if someone else was in this situation and that was that was the thing that they were deciding, you could, and they're going to give you pushback, but you have the right to say this. I am not going to agree to an induction until you have assessed this for 30 minutes. Or you could say, Listen, is my baby in immediate danger? And they'll, you know, an honest person's going to say, well, probably not. Say, okay, good. I'm going to go out and have lunch, go for a walk, and they'll come back and we'll, and we'll put me, do another biophysical profile on me. Great. You shouldn't That's have to great. assess it. This is what they should tell you. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, yeah or I'll come back tomorrow. Yeah. Right? Baby great. that has a SCAPGAR score of six out of eight, where the only thing that's missing is fetal breathing, is not going to die tomorrow or tonight. Right. And sometimes that's true with um, the low amniotic fluid, too, that you could come back because it can change drastically. So great. Right. It's a spectrum of things. And you and you have to use clinical judgment. And unfortunately, most of my colleagues have lost the ability to use clinical judgment because they're all running on some sort of algorithm or ACOG guidelines that are now benchmarks for quality and not just suggestions based on yeah. level C evidence. Yeah, and just like you were saying earlier about them not being able to move forward until they had your address to fill that prescription, it's the same kind of thing when you're in a big organization like that. It's not individualized. They have boxes that they have to check. They have to fill these things in in order to cover their ass because they'll get fired, they'll get written up, you know, all kinds of things. So you become just another body. You're not 
It's not individualized at all. They can't think for themselves. Okay. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with medical inductions of labor. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. So you asked me to look into labor induction. And one of the things you asked me about was what's the rate of labor induction? How many women are getting induced? Remember you asked me that? Right. Yeah, because it feels like it's increasing, 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 increasing. Well, it is. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> okay. So I, I did a little research and I found uh, an article that talks about trends in labor induction in the United States from 1989 to 2020. And induction of labor in the United States has more than tripled since it first began to be recorded from birth certificates or certificates of live birth in 1989. So the data comes from birth certificates. We've already talked about many times in the podcast, the flaws in look, retrospectively looking at birth certificate data because, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, who fills it out and that sort of thing. But, and because it is arbitrary who fills it out, who doesn't fill it out, the likelihood that these induction rates um, are underreported is high. So the numbers I'm going to give you are probably higher, but because no, if somebody has an induction Somebody, the box says you have to fill it out for an induction. So if somebody, if it's not filled out, that means you didn't, didn't have an induction. If you had an induction, you might've had the box filled out, but you might've had the box missed. So clearly it's going to be skewed in a way, sort of like VAERS reporting is skewed in a way that they say only 1% to 10% of adverse events are reported. The same thing here. But in 1990, 1989, excuse me, the, the induction of labor rate in the United States was 9.5%. Okay. And just to make a long story short, in 2020, the induction of labor rate was 31.37%. Okay. 
All right. So that's one in every three women are being induced. According to these stats, you and I may think it's slightly higher than that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. What, what what's, what's the Cheshire uh, grade for? We're, we're saying a third of women are being induced. Is that what you're saying? Since 20 that's, in 20. That's according to birth certificate data. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm going to say it's it's much higher than that. And since 2020 Based on what? Just your gut? Just just what is being reported, just what I'm the stories that are being told. I mean, from a woman who says, "I all my friends ended up being induced." You know, like I have one woman who's in my care as midwife and her group of friends are all being induced and a third of them to 50% of them are having C-sections because, you know, inductions oftentimes will lead to things like that. So uh, what do you call that? Anecdotal evidence? Yeah. Yeah. And there are also communities like the Amish community where induction rate is near zero. So, uh, right. It's going to be at least 31%, so, which, which is ridiculously high in and of itself. Yes, I agree. But there's an interesting, interesting thing that she says here in this article by Kathleen Simpson, PhD. Induction of labor has a significant effect on nurse staffing needs. As the rate has risen, so have the nursing resources required in the inpatient setting to provide safe, high-quality nursing care during labor and birth of a patient having induction of labor. Maternal and fetal assessments every 15 minutes and careful titration of oxytocin to promote adequate labor progress while maintaining fetal well-being, avoiding tachycystole, and providing labor support are factors in the necessity of one nurse to one woman or one-to-one -one nursing in, labors having in, in labor having induction of labor with oxytocin. I can tell you that that's not possible in most hospitals. They oh, may yeah. have a policy that says you, when somebody's on pit, they need one-to-one -one nursing. That's just not reality. And so they may have guidelines that say you should have one-to-one -one nursing, but that's a guideline they choose not to follow. Whereas they have guidelines that, that promote the system and generate revenue for the hospital, those guidelines they'll follow. It doesn't generate revenue to have to have all these nurses for all these inductions. So they cut corners and they do. Yep. And then it leads to potentially more problems as we'll get to as we go, as we go through this, this data today, okay? Great. But we're doesn't matter. We're saying the induction rate, we, we think the C-section rate of, of 30 32% is ridiculously high. All right. In, in a normal human female, why should they, why should one out of three not deliver vaginally? Well, the same thing, a normal human female, one out of three needs to be induced. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I mean, these numbers, I found them, I know that you think it's higher. I just think that that's a stunningly high number. Yeah. And I literally feel sick to my stomach when we talk about this kind of stuff. I get so upset that that is happening to so many families, but I'm so glad that we're covering it. So I don't want to keep interrupting you because I know you got a lot of good data. No, no, you should, because people like, people like when you interrupt me anyway, <laughs> but, because they like hearing your voice and, and the wisdom that comes out of it. But I, I will tell you, Bliss, it's interesting. I mean, I know that we have a skewed population in the home birthing world. And I know that a certain small percentage of our clients end up having to go to be transferred care antepartum because they have a problem. But can you imagine if 30, 31% of, of our patients ended up having to be induced? No. I mean, something would be wrong. Yeah. I mean, we do cherry pick our clients. I don't. I mean, I take diabetics and hypertensives. I don't do preeclampsics and twins and breaches and stuff. But, but um, you know, we've never induced anybody. 
you know, we wow. may try we may try natural methods of induction, but we've never had to do this, and certainly not a rate anywhere close to this, because no. the model of care we have doesn't find doesn't looking isn't searching for problems that then they can say, see, we need to induce you, like Hashimoto's. <laughs> and then I think that that's another like great example of you know, look at the statistics of of midwifery care. Look at the statistics from from the farm, which has been. 50 years of, of statistics to tell you like a normal, healthy female, what, what is the reality of what's needed and, and why are we tolerating what, what is happening inside of our medical system? Like, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep signing up for it? Why do we keep going back? And I get it. Some people don't have access to midwives. And I know that this is going to be a really radical statement, but I'm going to say it anyways. This is why women free birth. You know, like the hospital is not necessarily, you can't find a midwife. The hospital is not necessarily the next best thing. If all of those things are going to happen to you and you're not going to actually be able to enjoy your pregnancy. So we have to start to really evaluate, like, what are we doing? Why are we continuing to be okay with a model that obviously is not respecting us as obstetrical violence is not honoring our babies, is not honoring our families, is actually dangerous in a lot of ways and is is affecting our mental health and the future of our families. Why do we keep tolerating it? That's just my Yeah, well that's a whole podcast so and we've done them on on psychology. It's a it's a it's a podcast on mass formation and and fear and how yeah. fear can manipulate people to do things they would never do, like turn on their own family members and stuff like that. So the trends in labor induction in the United States, the labor induction rate has an all-time high in the U.S. Although induction of labor is recommended as a therapeutic option only when the benefits of expeditious birth outweigh the risks of continuing the pregnancy, a psychosocial indication has become a common rationale for the elective induction in the United States. It is unlikely that all women are provided with a complete discussion of the cascade of interventions that frequently accompany labor induction and the risks of cesarean birth. And this is from an article from the Journal of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Neonatal Nursing. And I'll link, I'll put this in the, uh, I'll put everything, any articles and stuff will be in the show notes. Um, so what, first of all, the first sentence is wrong. It says, although induction of labor is recommended as a therapeutic option only when the benefits of expeditious birth weigh the risks of a continuing pregnancy. That's not correct. That should be correct, but it's not correct. Right. So, you know, you have a presumption that people are ethical and honest, and that's not the case. And that people aren't skewed or scared, or doctors aren't of skewing their counseling to get people to do stuff simply because it fits the model by which they feel most comfortable practicing. So they're, it's more about them and the system than it is about the woman and her baby. Also, if you look at statistics, there's also a peak at certain times of the day, like at the end of the day or the very beginning of the day or around holidays and weekends. So if that was actually true, then then we wouldn't have these peaks in times when it was actually just more convenient for the provider, not necessarily a clinical indication. Absolutely. Professional organizations should take proactive steps to advocate for pregnant women so they are fully aware of the risks and benefits. A public campaign to discourage elective labor induction for nulliparous women is worth serious consideration. Now, this article was in November of 2003. Yeah. 
<laughs> What's happened since 2003? The rate of C-section rate is almost doubled in the United States. Not quite. It's gone up from like 20% up to 32%. So, um, but it, but see, the idea that of this statement is it's not in the economic or expediency interest of the system. The system doesn't want you to take the time to discourage elective induction of labor. Um, the system is a monster that needs continuous feeding as a metaphor. And so the, the, it's not in the economic interest and the, as I said, the expediency interest or the, the convenience interest of a system to discourage these things or to follow the ethical pathway of giving women informed consent. That's just not what they do. So, uh, yeah, and that's 2003. And again, these are the kind of, this is where the cognitive dissonance comes in and, and ignoring articles that don't suit your, your, uh, your model of care and, and cherry picking the ones that do. So here's one that's saying we should do less. The ARRIVE trial comes in and says we should do more. Oh, let's do the ARRIVE trial. It's really cool. Let's do that. Right. Okay. So my go-to people for, for when you ask me to do a topic is ACOG, not because I believe everything that they say, but because at least they put it in an order where then you and I can comment on stuff. So um, ACOG has two things. They have one thing called Frequently Asked Questions, which is a thing they publish for the layperson, for patients. And so I wanted to go through this a little bit about it. So what is labor induction? Labor induction is the use of medication or methods to bring on and induce labor. Why is labor induced? Labor is induced to simulate contractions of the uterus in an effort to have a vaginal birth. Labor induction may be recommended if the health of the mother or fetus is at risk. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. I circled the word risk because I wrote down in the medical model, they're always at risk. True. <laughs> Okay. True. So mm -hmm. again, whoever writes this is trying to do a good job of writing it, but they don't really understand the model by which in which they work. You know, you can't, you can't see all over the walls of the box you live in. You don't know there's other things on these on the other side of the wall. So you know, they're saying that other well, well, Hashimoto's. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she's on Synthroid and Levothyroxine. She's stable. It's not a risk factor. Oh, but you know what? She's thirty five. You know, where you and I see beauty, they see risk. Okay. So their definitions are very simplistic, but here are the risk factors that they tell lay people. This is what they give to people who want to read about this. Your pregnancy has lasted more than 41 to 42 weeks. Not according to their ARRIVE trial. <laughs> you have health problems, such as problems with your heart, lung, or kidneys. All right. Okay. Well, it's very subjective. Some of those things are absolutely true. All right. But if you have some minor lung problem, like asthma, and it's well-controlled, that's not a reason to induce you. No. There are problems with the placenta. Well, that's pretty vague. Especially when they tell you that all placentas are aging. Right. Oh, is, is a grade three placenta a problem? Or, is it, or do they mean poor placental perfusion, decreased blood flow to the baby, growth restriction, oligohydramnios, abruption, placenta previa, whatever? No. These are vague, vague things. And unfortunately, obviously, they can't, in, an, in a handout, they can't give all information to women who are seeking it, but it can be so misleading, right? There are problems with the fetus such as poor growth. Well, we already talked about. Poor growth is not defined by the size of the baby. Poor growth is defined as how the baby is growing over a period of time. A baby that's fifth percentile at 20 weeks, that's fifth percentile at 30 weeks is growing just fine. Right. So poor growth, they'll say anything under the 10th percentile is poor growth, but it's not. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. 
Here's one that you'll love. There's a decrease in the amniotic fluid. <laughs> well, we know that in the third trimester, amniotic fluid slowly decreases. So they're so not even... Is it picking time? <laughs> everybody has a problem. Yeah. Okay, you have an infection in the uterus. Okay, that's a good one. You have gestational diabetes or had diabetes mellitus before pregnancy, type 1 diabetes. Not necessarily. Not in 2023. We've talked about that many times. Diabetes is not the same disease now with the way we can manage it than it was 30 years ago. You have chronic hypertension, all right? Preeclampsia or eclampsia, yeah, for sure. But chronic hypertension, not necessarily. And then you have preterm, excuse me, pre-labor rupture of membranes, all right? Well, what, what does that mean? You mean, mean ruptured an hour ago and now I need to be induced? Yeah. That's what happens. There are, look, I still remember when I was on vacation and other doctors were covering my practice I remember coming back and seeing that one of my clients had a cesarean section and I felt bad about it, obviously. And I go in, I'm sitting and talking to her at a postpartum visit and, and I, what happened? And she said, well, I broke my bag of waters and Dr. Belzer told me to come in right away. And of course, once they come in right away, there's no reason to come in right away. Clear fluid, no problem, no reason. And then once they came in, they, nothing was happening within the first four hours. They started the induction and ended up in a C-section, right? Okay. What are elective inductions? When you choose labor induction and you and your fetus are healthy, it is called an elective induction. For example, labor may be induced at your request for reasons such as physical discomfort, a history of fast labors, or living far away from the hospital. Okay. You just need to know what you're getting yourself into. Exactly. Informed. Labor induction may also be considered for healthy women at 39 weeks of pregnancy to reduce the chance of a cesarean birth. Okay, so this is quoting the ARRIVE trial, hmm. right? Because they said, read induction of labor at 39 weeks, and that was, that's a link to the ARRIVE trial. Uh, reducing the rate of chance of cesarean birth was not the primary outcome of the ARRIVE trial. The primary outcome was neonatal death, and it didn't prove anything by inducing women at 39 weeks. What they found was it lowered the C-section rate from 22% to 18%. Now, is that really significant? Considering all the risks of induction, which are never discussed, and the whole thing people have listened before, who has a, a C-section rate of 22%, let alone 18%? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. what were they doing to get, it, get in their control group was getting a 22% C-section rate? How did they do that? All right. So I'm not going to say much more on that. We did do a podcast, I think, on the ARRIVE trial. Okay. So when is labor not to be induced? And I think all these things are true. One, placenta previa. Two, transverse lie. But, and then they say, or the fetus is in a breach presentation. Right? <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, when would you do a cesarean section and not do an induction? That's what they're pointing to. Not why yeah. should you a induction period? Okay. Yeah. So got yeah. it. Okay. But they, but they include breach presentation in that, which is absolutely false. I think our listeners know how we feel about breach. We love those babies. Yeah. And the fact that they, they say that that's not a reason to induce. No, we, we agree partially that we don't like to induce breaches. We'd like to see breaches go into spontaneous labor and do their thing. But in the hospital, Setting, I would, I would treat a breech baby who had an indication for induction the same way I would treat a head down baby if they needed to be induced because they had a reason to be induced, like worsening preeclampsia, then you can induce them. In that medical model, they just section them. Prolapsed umbilical cord. Duh. Okay. Active genital herpes. That makes pretty good sense. I still, I've really never done a deep dive into the data behind that. Didn't we do a podcast on herpes? We did. Yeah. We did. I guess we did do a deep dive. I just don't remember, you know, 
because um, not all genital herpes is the same. Primary yes. genital herpes is something where that's really true, but with recurrent herpes, it's not necessarily clear that baby could get herpes from that. So, and then some types of previous uterine surgery, such as classical cesarean or transmural fibroid resection, those sorts of things are maybe reasons not to induce as well. That makes sense. Okay. So cervical ripening. Um, Bishop's score. Do you know what Bishop's score is, Bliss? Yeah, it's an assessment of a bunch of different things having to do with like the cervix and how far along she is and stuff like that. You can be more specific. That helps medical staff determine whether or not this is worth doing an induction if it'll be successful. Like anything else I've learned in my in my medical training, I've I've come to like not necessarily trust these sorts of algorithms that doctors use, but these are the algorithms that are used in their studies to determine whether induction with a Bishop score of less than six or greater than eight or whatever else and what the success rates are. So just quickly, I'll go over that. There are five things with the Bishop score, dilation, length of the cervix, consistency of the cervix, position of the cervix, and the station of the baby's head. And a zero is given if the cervix is closed, the length of the cervix is four centimeters or greater, which means there's no effacement whatsoever. The consistency of the cervix is firm or hard, and the position of the cervix is way posterior. As the baby comes down and cervix ripens, it begins to come move forward. And then the baby's head station is minus three or above. So those would be zeros. And then a three, which is there's ones and twos, and a three would be dilation of five centimeters or more. Cervical length is completely effaced. Consistency is totally soft. Position of the cervix is anterior, and the head is at plus one or more station. So those are three. So you get you get points for each one. So you could have a score that runs anywhere from zero all the way to 15. Three, 15, right. All right. So a score greater than, than eight is generally considered a very ripe cervix. A score less than six is considered a cervix that's not very ripe. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, a bishop score less than six means that your cervix may not be ready for labor. What is ripening of the cervix? Ripening of the cervix is a process that helps the cervix soften and thin out. Ripening of the cervix can be done with medications or with special devices. What medications are used to ripen the cervix? Well, one is prostaglandins. There are forms of chemicals made naturally by the body. They can be given vaginally or by taken orally. Some prostaglandins are not used if you have a previous cesarean birth. All right, they're contraindicated in people with a VBAC or other uterine surgery to avoid the possible risk of uterine rupturing. Can you read that again, the beginning of what a prostaglandin is? Prostaglandins are medications that can be used to ripen the cervix. They are forms of chemicals made naturally by the body. Is that the part you're talking okay. about? Okay, yeah. So yeah. is that possible, Stu? What? That they're, that they're that applying... The ones they're giving you are the ones made natural by the body? Right. Yeah, no. Okay. No. Yes. No, I mean... It's not natural. What they're, they're giving they're you... They're related. It's not natural. They're related. You know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> You know, the professor who created them was related to the uncle of the person writing the article. Therefore, they're related. (laughs) (laughs) They're chemicals given to you. Synthetic chemicals given to you to ripen your cervix. Yeah, I didn't even, you know what, Bliss, I didn't even catch that when I read it the first time. I know that's Mm -hmm. glad you, glad you're listening. Okay, so besides prostaglandin, what else? Well, there are devices that they can use to ripen the cervix. There are two. One's a catheter. We call it a cook catheter or Foley catheter. And the other one is something called laminaria. And laminaria are thin rods made out of a synthetic material. They used to be made out of seaweed. Now they're using something else. 
And they basically absorb water and expand slowly. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Oh. I learned something. Yeah, we commonly use them when somebody was going to have a late first or second trimester termination or they had a fetal demise and needed to have a DNC or a DNE. Uh, it gently opens the cervix over six to 12 hours. Sometimes you put laminaria in like at five o'clock in the evening and the last patient in the office, and then you do the procedure the next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And they have little strings on them. So if it gets really uncomfortable, like a tampon, the woman could just pull them out. And generally you try to get as many in as you can, two, three, four, five, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, they're sort of a gentle way of opening the cervix. I've never really seen it used for live babies, cervical ripening at term. But I'm sure in some yeah. countries where that probably is a lot cheaper than than using a Foley or a Cook catheter. So, right. Mm-hmm. What is stripping the membranes? Also called sweeping the membranes, common way to induce labor. Your practitioner sweeps a gloved finger between the amniotic sac and the wall of your uterus, separating the mem- fetal membranes from the cervix. This action is done when the cervix is partially dilated. This action may cause your body to release prostaglandins. Naturally, kind of. Which soften the <laughs> cervix and may cause contraction. Well, they're your body's own prostaglandins. Mm-hmm, right. right. Okay. What is oxytocin? See, if you like, see what you think about this. Oxytocin is a hormone that causes contractions of the uterus. It can be used to start labor or speed up labor that begin that began on its own. By the way, um, oxytocin is not approved for induction of labor by the FDA. Oxytocin is pitocin. Well, pitocin is not approved by orcytocin if you're in Australia mm-hmm. or England. Mm-hmm. It's approved for augmentation, but it's not approved for induction, yet it's used off-label, another off-label thing all the time. So it's given in our country, it's given intravenously by a slow, by a drip, right? But I did find an article, which I thought was very interesting because even though it's not directly correlated, it tells you something about a a medication that people will tell you is relatively benign. Okay. It's not, it's not directly relatable, this article out of India, uh, because we use slow IV infusion and in many places in rural India and other places, they actually inject IM pitocin to get labor started. Or to augment in the, the labor. In the leg? In the thigh? Leg or arm, yeah. Oh, okay. They don't do a drip because they don't have IVs. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So the title of the article, which was in Epidemiology, which is a pretty re- renowned journal from 2020, said antenatal uterotonics as a risk factor for interpartum stillbirth and first day death in Haryana, India. And I'll just read a couple things. The use of uterotonics like oxytocin to induce or augment labor has been shown to reduce placental perfusion and oxygen supply to the fetus, and studies indicate that it may increase the risk of stillbirth and neonatal asphyxia. Antenatal use of uterotonics, even without the required fetal monitoring and prompt access to cesarean section is widespread, yet no study has adequately estimated the risk of interpartum stillbirth and early neonatal deaths ascribed to such use. We conducted a case-controlled study to estimate this risk. Um, I actually looked at it in detail. I just want to, I'll just say this, that we don't do a Give pitocin this way, but knowing that pitocin given pitocin given this way can cause this problem doesn't mean that because we give it intravenously it can't cause this problem. So anyway, I think that it's just a, a drug that is often just blown off, sort of like epidurals are given like candy, and oh, there's no downside to that. Oh, you might have a little needle stick in your back or that sort of thing. You know idea that it separates mom from baby or that it can cause a hematoma or nerve damage is so downplayed. And yet 
and yet you can't eat because you might have a problem. But the conclusion from this study says that uh, our study strongly is consistent with the hypothesis that the use of antenatal oxytotics, which is Pitocin, when to a large extent given on an inappropriate indications and without adequate access to emergency obstetric care, substantially increases the risk of intrapartum stillbirth and day one deaths. These findings are sobering when seen in the light of other studies showing the extent of inappropriate oxytocin use, use during facility as well as home deliveries. So we don't see use of oxytocin in home deliveries that ever, anybody that I know of, I've heard stories given prior to the baby being out. Not but okay. there, are, there are stories of women who are midwives who have given tocin to try to do things, either giving it through the IV and just guesstimating a drip or giving it a shot. That's a dangerous thing to do. Don't do it. Yeah, don't okay. do it. Okay. Um, can rupturing the amniotic sac bring on labor? All right. Most women go into labor within hours after their water breaks spontaneously. And I used to quote people saying that like 90% of women will go into labor within 24 hours. Is that what you used to say? Yes. She's nodding, people. <laughs> yes. Yes. Within 24 hours, most people will. If the sac hasn't burst already, breaking it can start contractions. Or if the contractions have already started, breaking the sac can make them stronger and more frequent. That actually has been my observation as well. What about you? Bad idea. Don't do it. Yeah, what your observation is that when it does happen, it does tend to speed things up, right? Not always. No, Not always. Okay. no, because if you've got a baby in a malposition and now you've taken away their ability to be able to rotate, it can actually cause dysfunctional labor, plus a lot of other problems. Now your your risk for uh, infection goes up. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Not, don't even get me started on the spiritual aspect of being able to be born into your sack in call. I mean, don't do it. Right. <laughs> That's why I was waving at you to, to say, because I knew what you were thinking. I can see it in your face. Amniotomy can, can be done to start labor when the cervix is dilated in the medical model. What does this do in the medical model? Well, in the medical model, this starts a clicking talk. Clicking talk. A ticking clock. Right. This happens when I'm talking too much. Like that happens. But if someone wants to say to you, uh, well, you're three centimeters dilated, let's just break your bag of waters. Say no. Just say no. Say no. Say say no. I don't really need to be induced. I'm going home. <laughs> no. <laughs> but if you need to be induced, I I would not start with breaking your bag of waters. I understand that I used to. That was old doctor. That was old doctor Fishbein. Doctor Stu would not do that now, for many reasons. But especially in the hospital, because the minute you break your bag of waters, they, there is it's almost like they have a little wall, a clock on the wall and they push a little button. Oh, and now it's been 12 hours. Now it's been 14 hours. Now it's been 18 hours. We got to start antibiotics. Oh, now blah, blah, blah. So don't let them do that because that, that will lead to further cascading of interventions. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I had a client who, for whatever reason, we were up against having to go in and do Pitocin, she was a multip. And I thought, you know, as a last resort before going into the hospital to do a medical induction could we use that as a potential? Yeah, possibly, but definitely a last resort. Yeah, it is. I remember very clearly we had a woman who was breached and she'd reached a point where we thought she'd been ruptured. And she reached a point where she was at an impasse at like eight to nine centimeters and just had nothing had changed. And, and so we did another vaginal exam. Actually, the midwife did a vaginal exam and said, Stu, I still think there's a bag of waters here. Mm -hmm. And I checked her and sure enough, she had been leaking, but it was either a leak or that chorion amnion fluid thing. And so it'd been a long time. She hadn't progressed at all. We were thinking about transferring because one of the things we like to see with breech birth is 
steady progression. And they said, well, let's just break the bag of water, see what happens. Broke the bag of water, baby is born like half hour later. <laughs> yeah, can yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> what are the risks of labor induction? Well, this is again, remember, this is a handout for, for families. One risk is that oxytocin is used, when oxytocin is used, the uterus may be overstimulated. Can you not use that word? I know they use it, but can you not use that word? Pitocin. Thank you. Right. It's all through the entire thing. I know. It's the wrong. They use, right? <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. And and I'll I'll say practitioner. You can continue to say provider, but that's okay. <laughs> Other risks of labor induction include chorioamnionitis, infection of the baby, and rupture of the uterus. Although this is rare. What if labor induction does not work? If you and your pregnancy are doing well and the amniotic sac has not ruptured, you may be given the option to go home. Rarely. Take it though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Advocate for it if you can. But here's the question. If you're being brought in for a medical reason to be induced and it's not working and they give you the option of going home, then why were you induced in the first place? Exactly. It's so serious. We need to induce you. Oh, the induction isn't working. Go home. <laughs> and that <laughs> happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a yeah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> The other thing is, if you or your baby are not doing well or after attempting induction, a cesarean birth may be needed. Yeah, okay. All right. So that's what they give to families and lay people. And then this is the last thing is the uh, uh, ACOG Clinical Practice Bulletin, number 107, from August of 2009. It's the latest ACOG guidelines on induction of labor. So nothing is really Okay, wait. But that's what they tell people. What, what else would you say is the downsides of induction? Well, baby's not ready. Mom's not ready. Induction almost always leads to a cascade of interventions, which right. then affects the baby. It eventually leads to contractions being really intense and mom probably requesting analgesia of some kind, whether it's a IV painkiller or an epidural. And of course, both of those are going to interfere with the communication of mother and baby. The IV painkiller is going to cross the placenta and sedates the baby. Speaking of which, Bliss, I just want to add, when I'm talking about sedating the baby, I was looking into a medication that was used because I was reading something that triggered me, and I pulled up an article from 1966, mm. and I want you to listen to a little bit of the language about sedation in early labor. The initial thing, and again, people spoke differently in 1966 than they speak now, even the English language, but it starts out, it says, those who seek oblivion should be given it. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. There's no, no importance to the woman being alert and aware. All right. Yep. So in 1966, before labor begins, chloral hydrate or barbiturates can be used to help the patient to sleep. Once labor is established, these are less desirable as their action is not reversible. Scopolamine has still a place in the management of, in of incoordinated types of labor, but should no longer be given with morphine because the combination causes marked inhibition of respiration in the newborn child. In normal labor, pain can be reduced by morphine or pethidine, but both these drugs can produce respiratory depression in the baby. Goes on. Drugs of the phenothiazine group are also used in labor and appear to be safe. Promethazine is said to shorten labor and rapidly disappears from the maternal circulation without reaching the fetus. However, the babies do not seem to be in better condition at birth after promethazine than when no tranquilizer has been given. Greedy and his colleagues state that perfect Perfenazine, given with pethidine and scopolamine, reduces the incidence of distress in newborn infants. Right? This is 
Oh, it's one of the letters that that I was going to read at the end about twilight sleep, and I, but I'm putting it here because because we're talking about analgesia, and it just came up into my head. The last thing it says, and you'll love the last sentence of this, is preparation during the antenatal period is of great importance. Patients who are calm on admission to the labor ward respond to drugs better than those who enter hospital already distressed. The most valuable function of drug therapy is to render the patient more accessible to suggestion. Mm. That's peer reviewed article in in the British Medical <laughs> Journal in 1966. Wow. Yeah. Wow is right. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So it separates it. So once you start the cascade of interventions, you're more likely to end up with surgical birth. You're more likely to end up with baby in the NICU. You're more likely to end up with a baby with infection, altered microbiome. All these things come into play. And, and if you're really truly giving informed consent, then you should talk about these sorts of things because they're far more common than aspirating and therefore not being allowed to eat. But that's one that they'll talk to you about. So I don't even know how to quite put this into words, but I'm going to try. So everything that you just said is completely accurate and is, is so great because I think it's really important that we hear these specific things because that's how we are managing birth most of the time. But just hearing all of those terms and, and imagining, because I, you know, if you're a first time mom, you may not totally be able to wrap your head around what does that exactly mean? But I have been to enough births in the hospital. I've seen medically managed inductions. I know doulas are really feeling this as well. But so much is lost, not just in the potential of all of these risks in, on your body, but the mental state, the peace, the connection, the love, the sanctity, the honoring this moment. You know, you think about like, again, I'll go back to the wedding analogy. If you're there and you're wanting to like be present to this beautiful moment and, and giving your vows and, and making eye connection with your beloved, and you have all of these other things going on around you that are, that are hectic and chaotic and, and people intervening, you can't really fully be present. And so those are, these are the things in life. And you've pointed to that before, Stu, it's like these things in life that are so beautiful and sacred that we are just missing. We're losing and, and starting to have the beginning of your labor be medically managed, not being able to eat, being in the hospital, being in a gown, being on monitors, having people come in and out. This does not allow you to fully be able to embrace and experience the birth of your child, the end of your pregnancy, the stepping into being a family, you know? Uh, so I want you to also realize that those things are very important, not you, but our listeners. Those things are very important as well as you're making these decisions about whether to deliver in a hospital or whether to agree to an induction. Those things can't necessarily be quantified, but they are, they're so, so very important in the human experience. This is why it's so good when we're together like this, because when you send me on a mission to look up induction and talk about induction, I get lost in, the, in my medical mind. And I forget that what you said is far more important than pretty much any of the other stuff that I said. <laughs> but, but, it's, it but it's important to people. But it doesn't matter in the medical yeah. model. Everything that you said could care less about. And that's what's really scary. I mean, listen to this sentence one more time from 1966. The most valuable function of drug therapy is to render the patient more accessible to suggestion. Somebody in 1966 thought that that was brilliant and put it 
and was happy to publish that in an article. Yes, because women who are in labor or who are PMSing or who are postpartum are out of control and crazy and you want to drug them up and make them more suggestible to whatever. You do. Yeah. <laughs> you do. <laughs> they do. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So this is from ACOG's practice bulletin. And I just want to read a couple of things where I put notes. I'll skip a lot of the other stuff. I went through the whole, the whole thing. The goal of induction of labor is to achieve vaginal delivery by stimulating uterine contractions before the spontaneous onset of labor. Generally, induction of labor has merit as a therapeutic option when the benefits of expeditious delivery outweighs the risks of continuing the pregnancy. And again, that term, risk of continuing pregnancy, is like who decides? And that's where we, when you have subjective things like this, and and, it's, and the doctors are all leaning toward induction, because again, live baby in the bassinet is their mission, then risk takes on a new meaning. Because mm -hmm. what one, the medical model sees as risk, a lot of people don't. The benefits of labor induction must be weighed against the potential maternal and fetal risks associated with the procedure. That should be emphasized, 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 emphasized. It's not. It's not usually a, considera it's not usually a consideration. So how did it start? In 1948, Theobald and Associates described the use of the posterior pituitary extract, oxytocin, by intravenous drip for induction of labor. Five years later, they call it oxytocin. I'm going to say pitocin was the first polypeptide hormone synthesized by, D by Duvignel and Associates. Other methods for use for induction of labor include membrane stripping, amniotomy, nipple stimulation, and administration of prostaglandin E analogs. And we've talked about some of these. Uh, so I'm going to skip over. We talked about oxytocin. We talked about membrane sweeping. Uh, mm -hmm. We did not talk about nipple stimulation. Nipple stimulation in itself is not going to get you into labor. Just, just yeah, don't think that if, if you're having sex with your partner and your nipples are being stimulated, that's going to set you into labor. It's not. If you're already on the cusp or you are having contractions, releasing oxytocin through kissing, through sensual touch, through using toys, through nipple stimulation, all of those things could potentially help increase things just like the synthetic form of oxytocin pitocin does. But just want to let people know that nipple stimulation in itself, whether it's with a pump or manually, is not going to be enough to get your late body into labor. And just as on cue, because science doesn't believe anything unless there's a study. <laughs> In a review of six trials, including 719 women that compared breast stimulation with no intervention, a significant decrease in the number of women not in labor at 72 hours was noted, but only in women with favorable cervixes. None of the women had uterine tachycystole uh, with or without fetal heart rate changes, and there were no differences in meconium stained amniotic fluid or cesarean delivery rates. So if your woman has an unfavorable cervix, there's absolutely no use to it whatsoever. And bliss, you're right. And from experience, it doesn't really work, even if your cervix is favorable. But they're saying that if you're going to try it, you it's shouldn't safer. waste your waste your time if it's, the cervix is not unfavorable. Yeah, it's not yeah, favorable, sense. right? Yeah, okay. Makes sense. All right, enough of that. Um, let's see. Normal contractions, which are ideally going for, is five or less contractions in ten minutes, averaged over a thirty-minute window. Tachycystole is defined as more than five contractions in ten minutes, averaged over a thirty-minute window. So in other words, if you have 15 contractions in 30 minutes, that's probably on the border of being too many. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't want people to worry about in a normal, healthy 
labor where you're not using medications or any other induction methods, natural or not, that your body has a wisdom and it's it's going to figure it out. It's not dangerous normally for the baby if it's a natural situation, but they're evaluating when they're using medications and stuff and causing things that can actually cause problems. For yeah, in the, in the absence of medication or in the rare case of a placental abruption or something like that, your body's going to do what it's supposed to do. If you're having that many contractions, it's often implies there's some pathology going on and you should, you know, think about, you know, look at the causes of that, right? Spin your baby. Spin your baby? Yeah, use some spinning babies techniques. Maybe, maybe the maybe the position is funky and so the uterus is working really hard to try and turn the baby. So use some spinning babies. Too. Ah, okay. Again, wasn't taught to me in residency. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what criteria should be met before the cervix is ripened or labor is induced? One is assessment of gestational age. Just a point I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're 39 weeks. We need to induce you. Yeah, but I had periods every six weeks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, is your dating good? That's another, you know, that's another thing to know. The patient should be counseled regarding the indications for induction, the agents, the methods of, of labor stimulation, and the possible need for repeat induction or cesarean delivery. Although prospective studies are limited in evaluating the benefits of elective induction of labor, nulliparous women undergoing induction of labor with unfavorable cervixes should be counseled about a twofold increased risk of cesarean delivery. So, despite the ARRIVE trial and all that bullshit, uh, <laughs> if you're a nulliparous woman with an unfavorable cervix, you have a much higher risk of having a cesarean section. If you're saying it's a twofold increase in risk of cesarean section, well, the overall risk is what, 30%? So if you're doing math, that would mean you have a 60% chance of having a cesarean section if they're being honest about it. And, and nulliparous, for those of you who are not medical provider, you know, caregivers, it means that you've never had a baby before. Right. And here's what I want your opinion on, Bliss, because it says allowing at least 12 to 18 hours of latent labor before diagnosing a failed induction may reduce the risk of cesarean delivery. What do you think about putting a time limit on latent labor? And what do you mean? What do you mean by latent? I guess it means you're not in active labor. So you're 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 under six centimeters or under four centimeters or whatever definition they're using. So giving them more time. Yeah, giving them more yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, I. That's my I point. Would, yeah, I would absolutely agree that that might not be enough time. Unless the reason you're inducing them is for an absolutely urgent reason, like someone just had an eclamptic seizure or they're they're, they're very very sick, and nothing's happened after 18 hours, turn off the pit, give them a steak dinner. Let them go home, okay? Yeah. Have them take a shower. Let them take a nap. Let them go to sleep. That sort of thing. Yeah, not, exactly. Not think that, well, it's been 18 hours. Nothing's happening. We're going to do a C-section now. Right, exactly. Because again, most of the time they're inducing you, they're inducing you for a very flimsy indication. We're not talking about things we talked about before, which are the indications for really good reasons to induce somebody. All right, so I'm going to skip all this because we've already talked about all this. Uh, Oh, are cervical ripening methods appropriate in the outpatient setting? What do you think? Um, I would say no because of uh, because of what you mentioned before that there's you know even in the story that you read that there's a possibility that the baby could not cope well if the uterus is contracting irregularly, like not irregularly, like not enough, but too much, which well, can happen from. I prostate. think you're thinking about you're thinking about things, but the use. Uh, it says here, no significant difference in adverse outcomes were noted in a randomized trial of 300 women at term comparing the use of controlled release prostaglandin E2 in an outpatient versus inpatient setting. 
And then it says outpatient use may be appropriate in carefully selected patients. Mechanical methods may be particularly appropriate in outpatient settings, like putting in a Foley. I was going to say mechanical, yes. Absolutely. Just, you know, with drugs, your body, you just don't know. Adverse reactions to drugs can happen. Yeah, but adverse things can happen just sitting in the hospital for 12 hours, too. <laughs> That's true. Well, you're better to speak to that because you're a doctor. As a midwife, I would not, I would not feel comfortable with that. But with putting in a, a Foley, I would. Okay, so lastly, the, the summary of recommendations. And these are level A recommendations. So level A is good scientific randomized studies, which is unusual for an ACOG guideline. Okay. Uh, prostaglandin E is effective. Lower high dose oxytocin regimens are appropriate for women in whom induction as labor is indicated. Uh, before 28 weeks gestation, vaginal mesoprostol appears to be much more effective than oxytocin. We can skip the dosing. A Foley catheter is a reasonable and effective alternative for cervical ripening inducing labor. All right. Well, as usual, I beat that subject to death. No, uh, it's great. People can it's great. people can replay parts of it and stuff. I wanted to yeah. end with an uplifting story from Miranda. Um, after listening to your most recent episode, she says, Hi, Dr. Stu in Bliss, not goddess, but just bliss. <laughs> I felt that you would enjoy my grandfather's birth story. My grandfather was born on New Year's Day in 1930. His parents were in a car on the way to the hospital when his mother gave birth. As my dad tells it, they didn't see a reason to continue to the hospital at that point. So they <laughs> turned the car around and went back home to the farm. My dad would tell us a story when I was young, always making everyone laugh. I never thought that deeply about it then. We thought it was a funny story because it was hard to imagine a culture not so dependent on the hospital. Interestingly, my dad's own birth story is unbelievably different. He was born in January of 1960. That year, they rolled out a new drug in order to help with labor and I think the pain. And that's where I got that article from. And that's mm -hmm. why it clicked into my head. Um, I don't know the name of it. So I went and looked up all those medications. It was given to my grandmother when she was in labor. She labored for over two days. Everything was so slow and she was out of it most of the time. When my dad was finally born on the third day, my grandmother didn't even really know what was going on. That drug didn't, the use of that drug didn't last until the end of the month. It was quickly taken off the market after a few weeks. How unfortunate that she was to give birth the same month they decided to roll that drug out. Mm -hmm. Another example sort of of stage one thinking and we're gonna, why don't we test the drug before we roll it out? No, we'll roll it out and, and then we're seeing really bad outcomes. We'll, we'll pull it back in again. My dad is adamant that he remembers his birth and I believe him. I can't imagine how traumatic that was for both him and his mom. All that to say how sad to see how birth has changed from generation to generation. But I am so encouraged by the work that you both do. Shifting the cultural mindset of birth is no easy battle. As just a mom, I am hopeful of showing my sisters and daughter how birth can be, not something to be feared. After a, home, after a birth center, then a hospital, I am hoping for a home birth for my third. Thank you both for this podcast and shifting the narrative a little at a time. If I lived anywhere near you, Bliss, I know I would be seeking you out for my next birth, but alas... I'm on the East Coast. Aw, I right. love that. That, make, that. that makes me feel good. So I'm sure that our fellow travelers are going to feel good too, that we're shifting the cultural narrative a little bit at a time. And for me, you know, the idea that we talked about at the very beginning, that does any woman in the medical model go through her pregnancy without being talked to about induction, <laughs> says a lot because that you and I even think that. And we are exposed to lots of people from lots of different walks of life. And, and we think that that's my lived experience. So I hope today's discussion about induction, although annoying sometimes and, and obtuse a lot, 
was informative for the people uh, who listen to our podcast. I'm sure that it was. Thank you for doing the deep dive. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 